For many people who contract the COVID virus, the illness comes and goes. Others develop what's known as long COVID. Symptoms last for weeks or months. The Veterans Affairs Department has developed what it calls a whole health approach to long COVID. With how VA practitioners are dealing with long COVID, we turn to the Deputy Assistant Undersecretary for Health, Elizabeth Brill. Dr. Brill, good to have you on. Thank you very much. Good to be here today. And let's just set the scene here. What exactly is long COVID? I guess it's kind of self-explanatory. There's a lot to it, isn't there? Yes, there is. So there are some varying definitions by different health organizations, but essentially long COVID is when symptoms either persist or return long after the initial COVID infection has happened. So four to 12 weeks afterward, and there's a variety of different symptoms. So not everyone's gonna experience long COVID exactly the same way. Many different body systems are involved. And I guess at this point in history, we don't know how long it can go really. That's correct, we do not know that. And how prevalent is this among the veteran population that VA serves, do we know? Well, the studies so far show long COVID occurs in about 4 to 7% of patients that have had COVID. However, uh, again, those are early numbers, and we could determine that number to be higher or lower over time. And have VA statisticians been able to associate it with any particular demographic? Is it more prevalent in men versus women, age group, or any other preconditions that might be extant? Yes, it does seem to be more prevalent in women. It is also more prevalent in people that in the early course of their COVID infection, respiratory symptoms was their major complaint. And it also is more likely in people that had a worse initial COVID course, such as folks that ended up in the ICU rather than someone who was asymptomatic. However, even asymptomatic folks can develop long COVID. Wow. So more reasons to be scared as we think we're coming out of this. Tell us about the effort in VA to develop the whole health approach that you have. So initially, our community of practice, which is essentially a number of clinicians of all different walks, came together organically as they started to see COVID and try to understand it and share knowledge across the VA system. It became clear as our researchers were observing long COVID, and VA was one of the first to really notice this phenomenon, that we needed to put together a really kind of comprehensive guide that we could share with all clinicians so that they could recognize long COVID and what to do. And so we put together a project team in order to assess, refer, and treat long COVID, and that's the whole health guide that we're speaking of today. And what are the disciplines that came together here? Oh, so many, from respiratory to cardiology to mental health, you name it. There's about 10 organ systems, so all of these specialists were involved in developing this guide. Mental health, that's an interesting one, too. It sounds like perhaps someone's mental state condition could have an effect on their ability to fight this. Well, so mental health, two components. It is part of long COVID, some anxiety and depression, as well as some brain fog that can occur in long COVID. Furthermore, our approach to treating long COVID is this whole health approach that really involves the veteran in their own care. And so their ability to really connect and focus 
may be impacted by any underlying mental health conditions that they have. And this is just an off-the-wall question. Are there any service-related preconditions, such as burn pit exposure or something like that, that is associated with long COVID, or is that a bit of a stretch? Not that we've seen thus far. Okay. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Brill. She's the Deputy Assistant Undersecretary for Health and Clinical Services at the Veterans Affairs Department. So what does the whole health treatment consist of? What are some of the elements of it that you're promulgating? Whole health as a concept involves the veteran at the center. They think about what's important in terms of their goals and what they're capable of and participating in their own health care. Then there's a community approach and some alternative medicine approach that goes along with traditional medical approaches such as medications and traditional therapies. And so whole health encompasses all of that together. What are some of the non-traditional effects or things you can take or do? Well, we look at biofeedback and acupuncture and breathing techniques and exercise such as Tai Chi or yoga. Those are some of the non-traditional elements of caring for a veteran with long COVID that, as you can see, they can have a lot of impact on themselves by choosing to elect those therapies. I'm sure that if you looked far enough somewhere, someone is prescribing a cannabis or CBD type of approach here. Is that possible within the VA system? Not within the VA system per se at this time. All right. So does VA itself administer acupuncture and and Tai Chi and these kinds of things, or do you just encourage patients to go seek it on their own, maybe from some of the community care providers? Actually, VA offers many, if not all, of these alternative therapies, depending on the location where the veteran is. And is one of the theories of this that perhaps it may not do anything, but if you believe it will, kind of the placebo effect, then that's just as good as if it actually has a physical manifestation. So the placebo effect is definitely well described in medicine, and so it is important. And a lot of this therapy has to do with a general sense of well-being. And so if yoga, relaxation, mindfulness increases a sense of well-being, then that we would consider success. And the guide now that you have published, is that strictly for internal use at VA or are you promulgating this widely in the medical field? We are trying to promote it across the country for VA and non-VA clinicians. We've done so much work to put this together. We think it's a terrific product. The little fact sheets on each symptom are very easy for a clinician to use, even someone who's not very familiar with long COVID. And so VA wants to share that across the country with all clinicians. What are the most common symptoms that might be treated by this approach? Do we know a hierarchy here? The most common symptoms that we generally see are respiratory and cardiology-type symptoms, such as fluttering, heartbeat, or some of them would have to be measured in a clinic, you know, heart function, and also diabetes development can be increased after COVID. That would have to be measured by laboratory tests. So there could be a dietary component then in the whole health approach, especially when you mentioned diabetes. Absolutely. Dietary and also exercise are both important components of whole health. But if you feel you have long COVID then and you are a veteran, don't live with it. There's some help you can really get now. Yes. And we have a veteran-facing guide which asks the veteran questions that they can make notes to themselves and take to their clinician 
and share what their symptoms are so that they can get pointed in the right direction in terms of specialty referrals. Dr. Elizabeth Brill is the Deputy Assistant Undersecretary for Health and Clinical Services at Veterans Affairs. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And may I just say one more thing, that the guide is available for anyone to see at publichealth.va.gov okay. if someone wants to take a look at it. And we'll put that link at our website as we post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story. It lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.